This is Guns and Butter. it's bigger than I even suspected. I, I had thought originally that it was a small rogue operation. And as time went by and I talked to people and, and started researching the book, I saw it was bigger than ever. And given the pushback and the blocking of people, uh, I really think that it goes wider and deeper than even I suspect. And uh, I think one of the reasons for this is that nobody wants to believe the entire government is corrupt from top to bottom that you can talk about uh, Edward Snowden or Tom Drake or William Binney, and they're very focused, very tightly organized uh, situations for a particular person, for a particular item. And what I'm saying is that the United States of America uh, and all of the branches, the executive, the judicial, and the executive know about this and are covering up essentially state-sponsored terrorism. And nobody wants to hear this. Nobody wants... uh, to uh, go any deeper in it than I've got. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, J. Michael Springman. Today's show, Visas for Al-Qaeda. Michael Springman is a former diplomat in the State Department's Foreign Service with postings to Germany, India, Saudi Arabia, and the Bureau of Intelligence and Research in Washington, D.C. He was chief of the non-immigrant visa section in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia from 1987 to 1989. In his position in Jeddah, he was routinely overruled by superiors when he denied visa applications submitted by unqualified travelers to the United States. The events of September 11th gave him a more profound understanding of the troubles he experienced in that job. He is the author of Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts That Rocked the World, An Insider's View. His articles on national security themes have been published in Covert Action Quarterly, Unclassified, Global Research, Op-Ed News, The Public Record, and Foreign Policy Journal. He is now an attorney in private practice in the Washington, D.C. area. Michael Springman, welcome. Thank you. I'm pleased and honored to be able to talk to you and talk to your listeners. Your book, Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts That Rocked the World, an insider's view, is a blockbuster starting from the first page. I'd like to read the dedication of your book. Quote, This opus is dedicated to the people of Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Russia, Syria, and Yugoslavia. I offer it as a small commemoration to both the living and the dead of those unfortunate countries, particularly those who were murdered in their millions by the United States of America, end quote. According to what you write, you've come a long way in your thinking about American foreign and now domestic policy. You are a former U.S. diplomat, having worked in many foreign posts, most significantly as a visa officer in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, from 1987 to 1989. How did you come to work in the Foreign Service, and what different posts were you assigned to? Well, I had gotten very much interested in foreign affairs when I was in high school. I had read um, Letter and Burdick's book, The Ugly American, and thought that the State Department uh, needed somebody who uh, uh, wasn't quite so hidebound and uh, uh, wearing blinders. 
So after I went to Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, I graduated and uh, tried to take the foreign service exam, passing the written test but failing the oral. Unfortunately, uh, I drew um, the former ambassador to Vietnam, the Ellsworth Bunker, who was a war hawk. And when they asked me what kind of uh, foreign policy problems uh, do you see in the world today, I mentioned Vietnam and said that uh, the American government was keeping its actions in Southeast Asia from the American people, but the folks in Southeast Asia, the Vietnamese, the Cambodians, and the Laotians, they all knew they were being bombed to hell. And boy, the interview went downhill from there. I wasn't the right kind of person they wanted. So over the next few years, I kept retaking the exam and always passing the, the written, but never the oral. And I sort of wondered sometimes whether I was the right person since I didn't come from the uh, upper class, uh, Ivy League educated elite uh, that normally goes into the foreign service. The folks from Harvard and Yale and uh, come from big money. So in, in my situation, um, I went abroad with the uh, State Commerce Exchange Program, which was a program set up to give Washington assignments to State Department people who needed to be in D.C. for some reason. And in return, Commerce Department employees uh, got positions as Foreign Service officers abroad. I was sent to Stuttgart. Later, I went as uh, when they created the Foreign Commercial Service, taking it away from the State Department. Uh, I went to India's commercial attache in New Delhi. And then eventually, uh, presumably citing my background in the the State Commerce Exchange Program and the Foreign Commercial Service, I eventually got through the uh, the oral exam and then was commissioned a Foreign Service Officer and as a reward was sent to Saudi Arabia, which was not on any of my lists of uh, uh, prospective assignments. And in fact, I had been told I was going to the embassy in what was then East Berlin. In your introduction, What Is This About?, you discuss Al-Qaeda. What is Al-Qaeda? Well, Al-Qaeda is one of the brand names uh, for the American Visas for Terrorists program. Uh, initially, uh, they were the Mujahideen, the people who recruited uh, around the world and sent to the U.S. for training and to Pakistan for training, and then sent to Afghanistan to shoot things down and blow things up, hopefully with Soviet soldiers inside. They then... Uh, became Al-Qaeda in another brand change, but it was basically the same fanatical Muslims uh, who were doing America's bidding and destabilizing first Yugoslavia and then uh, Iraq and then Libya and then Syria. And now they're calling them uh, ISIL or ISIS or Daesh. And it's the same people. Uh, It's the Arab-Afghan Legion. It's the guys originally recruited as the Mujahideen uh, 25 years ago or more. And, uh, you know, they're not as organized as the Marine Corps, uh, but they are crazy people that uh, have been recruited and trained by the Americans and supplied by the Saudis and the Gulf states and others. And uh, they're turned loose to destabilize, dehouse, deculturalize, uh, and destroy uh, countries the United States doesn't like or governments the United States doesn't like. And uh, they did it in Iraq, they did it in uh, Yugoslavia, they did it in Libya, which had one of the highest standards of living in all of Africa. Uh, And they're doing it to uh, Syria, which I think is in a worse condition now, after four years of American-sponsored war, than Iraq was or is. And there are at least a million dead in Iraq. And uh, 
Still 4 million people uh, as refugees are internally displaced. And Syria has the same problem. There are 4 million people outside the country. One of your introductions is entitled, Why Did I Write This Book? Why did you write this book? Well, I wrote the book because more than 20 years of speaking out against what was being done to me and the rest of the world, uh, analyzing uh, the disastrous American foreign policy, the imperial American foreign policy, uh, and not getting a whole lot of um, response, I said, well, all right, I have done Freedom of Information Act requests with the State Department and gotten nowhere. I did that in 1992 when I was fired and wanted to find out why. And when states stalled me for two years and gave me no information, I filed a lawsuit in U.S. District Court. And it was sealed and shut down as a threat to national security. And I still wonder why finding out what was going on about my firing uh, was a threat to national security. But I think now we know. Um, the second time I, uh, second impetus to this was several years ago when I filed another Freedom of Information Act request and again got stonewalled by the State Department. Uh, I wanted the original visa applications I had refused years ago and had been repeatedly overruled by Jay Frayers, whom I believe to be a CIA uh, official. And he was the driving force behind all of these illegal visas. Uh, People had no ties to their own country or Saudi Arabia, yet wanted to go to America for reasons none of them could articulate. And that was shut down because the State Department claimed, well, we can't find any of these records. They've all been shredded. And I said, well, that's not true because we interviewed 45,000 applicants a year. And we had, when I was there, filing cabinets filled to overflowing with applications 5, 10, 15 years old. And if they haven't been shredded, which I doubt it, uh, I want to know the names of the people who shredded them, their rank, and the dates they were shredded. And state would never do this. And Reggie uh, Walton, the judge who was also in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court, simply closed down my uh, Freedom of Information Act lawsuit as having uh, 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 used up all of my administrative remedies. So I said, all right. I've had enough. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to try and tie this all up together, and I'm going to get it out to people who really need to know about this. And that's what I've been doing since February 6th. Is that February 6th of this year? Of this year, that's right. I, I, I closed down the research in December of last year, 2014, and said, I can't do this. I'm going to keep going on forever. Uh, this book is timely. It's important. Uh, people need to know about it. And uh, sent it off to the printers. and. Uh, was done with it February 6th, and uh, it was on the street, I think, later that month. What kind of people does the U.S. government hire to formulate and manage its imperialist foreign policy? Idiots. And they're generally people who do not work for the Department of State. State claims it wants the best and the brightest, but some of the ones I've met aren't the best and the brightest anywhere in the world. And Unfortunately, most of the people who work for the State Department work for the intelligence services. I had a former chief of station and a real foreign service officer, Jay Hawley, tell me that the average is about one in three foreign service officers work for one of the American intelligence services. Uh, there was a former ambassador who's now died. Uh, he said about half of the people in many foreign service posts work for the intelligence services. 
when I was in Jeddah, out of some 20 Americans, there were only three people, myself, Mike Springman, Ronnie Washington, the only State Department communicator, and Jim Page, an administrative officer. We were the only people who had no ties, professional or familial, with any of the American intelligence services. According to a book that was published in Canada, ran about 12 pages that I've not yet seen, but found on namebase.org, two-thirds of the people who work for the State Department as foreign service officers are really intelligence officers. And these are the people who are incredibly arrogant, self-centered, and contemptuous of everybody else in the world. With regard to some of your experiences in Jeddah, didn't you discover things yourself going on there that the U.S. government itself wasn't even aware of? Yes and no. Uh, when I was in Jeddah, I was uh, getting some really strange people as visa applicants and uh, later found out they were sent to me uh, by the intelligence services. Um, but... Uh, in one instance, my ability to make contacts and talk to people brought in uh, a major revelation. The Saudis, in about 1988, had been very much interested in buying Chinese-made silkworm missiles. These were intermediate-range ballistic missiles. And I was going out to dinner with some Europeans uh, one day. They came over to the house for a couple of beers before we left. And this guy said, well, you know, I'm working down at the port. And you know those Chinese silkworm missiles? And I said, yeah. Well, they're bringing them in. They're unloading them, and they're moving containers around to block the sight lines. Well, as luck would have it, the air attache was down from Riyadh, and I called him up the first thing the next morning and told him what I had gotten from the, uh, the fellow. And he said, that's news to me. I'm not down here about this. I came down to do scuba dive. So he went and got... Uh, Pictures taken either through a, a satellite overhead imagery or through a, a, a flyover with a reconnaissance plane. And the National Security Agency hadn't heard about that. And the CIA, uh, Karen Sasahara, the case officer who was uh, diplomatic cover, was um, a political officer. She didn't know about it. And uh, the State Department's uh, secretary for the Consul General, who had once worked with the CIA, um, she was mad because she had to come in on her day off and write the cable uh, about this. And as a footnote, Karen Sasahara is now deputy chief of mission in Sanaa, and she's working with her husband, Michael Ratney, who had been uh, consul general in Jerusalem and is now American ambassador to Syria. And so they're, they're keeping uh, terrorism and uh, uh, warfare in the family. I'm speaking with former U.S. diplomat, attorney, and author Michael Springman. Today's show, Visas for Al-Qaeda. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What's it like in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia? Well, Lonnie Washington, the, uh, the communicator, said that, well, the Saudis put a lot of restrictions on everybody, and the Americans put restrictions on top of them. You had to take your liquor bottles and uh, beer cans uh, to be crushed uh, so the Saudis wouldn't know that you were drinking beer. Even though Saudis came to American uh, functions on the compound where everybody was drinking and they drank too. The, the, the place was amazing. You, you, if you had the right connections, if you had what the, the Arabs call wasta, you could get almost anything done you wanted. I had dinner uh, at uh, a high-level uh, Saudi fellow's house, and he said uh, before dinner, Mike, uh, 
would you like uh, whiskey before dinner or would you want a, a, an aperitif of some kind? We can get you sherry or you name it, we've got it. And I said, wow. But, uh, you know, it was an amazing place. Uh, you could do anything uh, if you kept it hidden. If you went out and influenced Muslims to drink, uh, you got tossed in jail and lashed and deported. But if you had the right connections, you could do anything you wanted. They had uh, undercover priests saying mass at J. Philip Frere's house. He was the American Consul General and supposedly a devout Catholic. Uh, and it was kind of like uh, Europe at the time of Henry VIII. You had uh, hidden priests posing as uh, uh, travel agents, uh, doing their ministry there. You had uh, Protestants uh, having religious services on the American consulate compound. And it, it was absolutely astonishing. You talk about how the U.S. Foreign Service was professionalized and merged with the Central Intelligence Agency. You, you've started to talk about this. How does the CIA operate within the Foreign Service? They have people called under official cover. They are... Uh, supposedly real foreign service officers uh, with black diplomatic passports. Uh, there were two CIA case officers in my A100 class, the, the class teaching how to be a foreign service officer, uh, when I was hired by state. Uh, they uh, simply go out and they're given assignments in the political section, the economic section, the commercial section, the administrative section, but they don't necessarily... Uh, work full-time in those sections. For example, Andy Weber, who is now Assistant Secretary of Defense for um, nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons, uh, he was a CIA case officer in Jeddah, uh, supposedly assigned to the um, uh, consular section, but he worked there maybe half a day. Uh, and uh, we really only had him there full-time when we had a flood of these applicants after the end of major holidays in Saudi Arabia. I tend to think of terrorist training as taking place in foreign countries, such as Jordan or Turkey or wherever. In fact, a lot of the training of terrorists took place right here in the United States, what was or is the Visas for Terrorists program? Well, that's essentially what I called uh, what I was being told to do in Jeddah. It was the, uh, the Mujahideen recruits that they were uh, bringing from all over the Middle East and uh, even to as far as East Asia. Uh, they were people who uh, wanted to be taught to shoot things down and blow things up. They brought them by the thousands to the U.S. to... Uh, be taught at U.S. military training facilities, uh, either in North Carolina uh, with the Navy or in uh, near Williamsburg, Virginia, with the CIA organization called the Farm. Uh, they're also being taught uh, in Jordan now. There are a number of American bases there that are teaching them how to do this. There are apparently bases in Turkey that are giving them the full treatment on how to destroy Syria and before how to destroy Libya, and it's. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, you would have thought they would have done it easier and cheaper abroad, but um, who knows what goes on in these people's minds. In your chapter, Enter the Patsy, I assume that you were the Patsy. Exactly. If they told me what they wanted me to do, I probably would have been dumb enough at the time to say, yeah, we work for the same government. Uh, yeah, you want a visa for a guy to uh, overthrow the evil, godless uh, 
Soviet empire, sure, I'll stamp the visa for you. But they never did that. I had this bizarre conversation with the then American ambassador, Walter Cutler. Uh, I was in um, area studies at the State Department's Foreign Service Institute. They were training an education arm and got a call from one of the desk officers for Saudi Arabia, the people who follow what goes on in the country and, and are essentially the State Department's embassy in Washington for Saudi Arabia or India or Germany or whatever country you're talking about. And he said, Cutler's in town. Do you want to meet him? And I said, yeah, sure. And I figured it'll be a five-minute hello and goodbye session. And Cutler kept me there for 45 minutes talking about all the problems my predecessor, Greta Holtz, had created for him and the embassy in Riyadh. She was refusing visas to servants for rich Saudi women who couldn't travel to the U.S. without seamstresses, hairdressers, and other fat totems. And I said, this is the most bizarre thing. He's telling me my predecessor is an absolute incompetent and a troublemaker. And he wants me to do something, but I can't quite figure what it is he wants me to do or what message he's trying to get across. And once it was over, I asked the uh, desk officer who was there with me, what was that all about? He said, well, I don't know. Cutler was just a queer duck. Well, Greta Holtz, who refused to answer three letters uh, asking about uh, what was life in Jeddah, what she wished she had known before she got there, and so forth, um, told me on the phone one day after I was out of the Foreign Service, well, oh, I was so upset I couldn't tell you about this. And I found this really peculiar because Greta Holtz is now American ambassador to Oman. And if she had all these problems, how is it that she's in the Foreign Service still and I'm out? When all I was doing was my job, which was essentially to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And so far as I've seen in my career in the State Department and since then, the only enemies there are around are domestic enemies. And they generally work for the United States government. Now, what were the three recruiting offices in Saudi Arabia? You worked in Jeddah. Weren't there two other centers? Uh, there was one in, in Dhahran um, uh, uh, at the consulate, or consulate. I've never been able to figure it out, and one in Riyadh. And nobody's been able to tell me their exact addresses. It was just, yeah, the cities, they were there, uh, but they never really gave me any concrete information. And try as I might, I couldn't find anybody who would tell me otherwise. Now, the problem that you ran up against professionally in your job is that you were actually denying visas. Isn't that right? Yeah. With a visa application, you've got to establish some kind of connection to the place of application or your own country. You have a job, you're going to school, uh, you're running a business, you have an investment, whatever that's going to be strong enough to bring you back from the United States for whatever reason you're going here. Uh, for example, people go for tourism, to visit relatives, uh, to uh, sign a contract with a business in the United States, whatever. And then they can't stay here. They have to go back to manage their own business. They have to graduate from their university. Uh, they have to uh, manage their uh, their job. They, they're a, a manager in a company, and they just can't go away and leave it. And none of these people had any of those ties. They were people that uh, couldn't name the city they were going to, couldn't tell me why they were going there, uh, had absolutely no information available uh, to me as to what they were doing or why they were going. 
And I thought once I had yelled and screamed and filed lawsuits that this had all stopped. Yet after September 11th, uh, I found, uh, and, and in researching the book, I found that Shana Steinger, S-T-E-I-N-G-E-R, had been the consular officer in Jeddah who had issued 11 visas to uh, people who were participants in the September 11th attacks. And I was thunderstruck at this. And Shana Steinger, who from my, my research on the internet, had given equivocal answers to the uh, 9-11 commission. She still has a job, has gotten promotions. Now, you're saying that 11 of the, what, uh, 19? 20. There, I, think, I think 19 or 20. Uh, 15 got their visas in Saudi Arabia, and 11 of the 15 got them in Jeddah. I see, at the very office where you worked. Exactly. I'm speaking with former U.S. diplomat, attorney, and author Michael Springman. Today's show, Visas for Al-Qaeda. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, you complained because you were being overruled when you denied visas, right? Who did you complain to? Well, I complained first to Justice Stevens, and Justice is a given name. He was head of the consular section. I complained to Jay Frares. I complained to Stephanie Smith, who I've since found out is a CIA official. Uh, she was counsel for consular affairs in Riyadh, and she told me this is a very bad thing. When you go back to Washington, uh, tell the Bureau of Consular Affairs about this, which I did, and they had absolutely no interest. Once I was out of the State Department, I complained to the Government Accounting Office, as it was known at the time. I complained to the Justice Department and to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, they told me after September 11th, uh, after I called office after office at uh, headquarters, to call the Washington District Office. And when I did, they said, well, uh, we'll get back to you. Well, that was 15 years ago. I'm still waiting. So how massive would you say the cover-up is? Uh, I think it's bigger than I even suspected. I, I had thought originally that it was a small rogue operation. And as time went by and I talked to people and, and started researching the book, I saw it was bigger than ever. And given the pushback and the blocking of people uh, like Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! and Tom Devine at the Government Accountability Project, I really think that it goes wider and deeper than even I suspect. And uh, I think one of the reasons for this is that nobody wants to believe the entire government is corrupt from top to bottom. That you can talk about uh, Edward Snowden or Tom Drake or William Binney, and they're very focused, very tightly organized uh, situations for a particular person for a particular item. And what I'm saying is that the United States of America uh, and all of the branches, the executive, the judicial, and the executive know about this and are covering up essentially state-sponsored terrorism. And nobody wants to hear this. Nobody wants uh, to uh, go any deeper in it than I've gotten. And I think there's a lot more to be uncovered if you can ever find the right person to talk. You write, quote, What I was protesting was, in reality, an effort to bring recruits rounded up by Osama bin Laden to the United States for terrorist training by the CIA. They would then be returned to Afghanistan to fight against the then-Soviets, unquote. Exactly. 
Yeah, well, they they went on uh, with the Mujahideen. They had recruited them. They had trained them. And along the way, I think they realized that, hey, we've got a cadre of people who are really good at destroying governments and countries. Why don't we apply this group to other countries where we have an interest in having an unstable uh, government with a failing economy? And I think they brought them to Yugoslavia first. They had Osama bin Laden and 5,000 or more Saudis there. Uh, they had people that they had trained and had worked with NATO in, in Yugoslavia to uh, destroy the country. And according to this guy, John Schindler, who had been with the National Security Agency and the Naval War College in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, they got a lot of help from the American government to get them there, to keep them there, and provide them with intelligence and weapons and training and so forth. And after that, they sent them to Iraq. Uh, and we've all seen what's happened to Iraq. It's been split into virtually three pieces with no functioning government and no functioning economy. Uh, they moved them to Libya. Uh, they had more arms in the, uh, amongst the uh, so-called uh, rebels in Libya than they, they had in the British Army's uh, inventory. And once they had gotten these people there and... Uh, had killed the American ambassador because he was apparently in the middle of uh, their efforts to move uh, weapons from Libya to Syria to help destabilize the country there. Uh, they had this uh, great opportunity to just shift people and, and weapons to uh, other countries they wanted to get rid of. And the Turks are helping. The Turks ship uh, plane loads and um, ship loads of arms and ammunition. Uh, they were shipped in Saudi aircraft as well. They were shipped in Turkish aircraft and Jordanian aircraft. President Carter and his national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, authorized, at the urging of the CIA, the secret American backing for Afghans resisting the Soviet-supported communist government in Kabul. This then triggered the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which was predicted by Brzezinski. So the arming of the Mujahideen was not in response to a Soviet invasion, but the cause of it. Isn't that right? They, that's right. They, they, they were working on this before the Soviets invaded on, when was it, December 24th, 1979 or thereabouts, or, or earlier. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, they drew them in, and uh, this was the beginning of the Mujahideen and the, the Visas for Terrorists program which is now uh, called ISIL, after another brand change. How would you characterize what you refer to as the Arab-Afghan Legion, and what was its origin? Well, these are the people, I, I, I picked the name up after looking at this, uh, perhaps as something of a, a clever play on words, but it, it's basically the, uh, the terrorists the Americans recruited, along with the help of the Saudis and the Pakistanis, uh, to fight in Afghanistan, that they uh, there were these people called the Afghan Arabs. They were not Afghans, but they were Arabs and other people from other countries, such as Indonesia or the Philippines, uh, who were brought into Afghanistan and who were trained to fight the Soviets. They were uh, thought to be easier to work with than the Afghans, and they they sort of gave them the the sobriquet, the Arab Afghans, which I turned into the Arab Afghan Legion. But it's the same crowd of really fanatical Muslims and Arabs who, uh, as Cheryl Bernard, the, the wife of Zalmay Khalilzad, the former American ambassador to uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and the United Nations, we went out 
And so the only way to, to get the Soviets out of Afghanistan was to find the wildest, most fanatical crazies we could. And that's why there are no moderates in the country. That's why there are no left-wing people in the country. That's why all we have in Afghanistan uh, is a bunch of, of fanatical Muslims. And isn't it also a fact that certain countries actually emptied their jails and sent the criminals there? Exactly right. They did that in Egypt. Uh, and I would imagine other places as well. Uh, that uh, You want wild men? You want troublemakers? Well, we got whole prisons full of them. Who is Abdullah Azam, co-founder of the Services Office, and what was his role in creating international terrorism? Well, he was the guy who worked with Osama bin Laden. In fact, he was Osama's mentor, as I recall. And uh, I'm trying to remember his ethnic identity. I I, want to say North Africa, but I'm not sure. Uh, But he was a... um, a fellow who worked with Osama bin Laden to create the support for the Arab Afghan Legion to support the uh, the people who were fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. And what is the services office that he co-founded? That was basically um, uh, an administrative office that handled recruiting. It handled publicity. Uh, he had said in in one of his uh, newsletters that. Um, the people who have the money are in the United States. Uh, the people who don't have the money are in poor Arab and Muslim countries around the world. And that, uh, you know, we, we want help from these people. And the best way to get help is to get it from the U.S. And I recall from your book that didn't he also publish a, a, some sort of a jihad magazine? Uh, yeah, that's right. And uh, th- that circulated uh, all over the world and in various languages. Um, he was managing the, the, they set up the services office to manage recruitment, training, and weapons. And they, they handled the Arab Afghan transfer to Bosnia, for example. And um, he, he was their, their think tank. He, he set up the Al-Kifa center in Brooklyn at the, uh, the mosque there that worked also with Bosnia to um, recruit people for the, um, the war in the Balkans. What is Operation Cyclone, and what role does it play in the Arab-Afghan Legion? Well, uh, according to John Pilger, the Australian journalist, um, CIA Director William Casey had given his backing to this crazy plan produced by the uh, Pakistan's uh, Inter-Services Intelligence Agency to recruit people from all around the world to join the Afghan Jihad. And... In addition to training them in in Pakistan, uh, they trained also people here at the CIA camp in Virginia, Camp Perry, or the farm, which is near Williamsburg. And that was Operation Cyclone. And it continued long after the Soviets had withdrawn from uh, Afghanistan in 1989. As far as you know, is Operation Cyclone still in existence? Well, I would imagine so, given that... um, They're training people in Jordan by um, the CIA's paramilitary arm, along with the U.S. military forces, Uh, and they're doing this in Turkey, so uh, I think it's still going on. Uh, They just have a different name for it, maybe, and they're they're probably doing it now more abroad than here, but uh, until somebody comes clean, we're never going to really know. And where were the terrorists trained in the U.S., and who trained them? Now, you, you mentioned one place. Uh, Camp Perry, uh, yeah, they they trained them uh, in uh, North Carolina at military facilities as well. Um, 
and I would imagine the, um, the Blackwater people were somehow involved, and they operated out of North Carolina. Well, who else do you think was training them? I think, didn't you mention the Green Beret in your book? Yeah, I mean, they, they, you know, U.S. Special Forces were involved in that. Uh, I think that they, they would have the, uh, the skills and abilities to uh, disrupt uh, a given government using small group forces, much like T.E. Lawrence did in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. I'm speaking with former U.S. diplomat, attorney, and author Michael Springman. Today's show, Visas for Al-Qaeda. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write, quote, Not even Adolf Hitler and the Nazis brought terrorists to Germany, trained them thoroughly, and then allowed them to operate against the German people. The United States did, though, and used its foreign ministry and intelligence services to help, and then covered it up, and still works very hard to keep the lid on. Yeah, I think that's unfortunately true. I, you know, Adolf Hitler is not the uh, the world's kindest, most gentlest person, but I, I think that uh, he kept the fanatics out of Germany, uh, but the Americans uh, brought them here, trained them, and, and then used them against American interests around the world. I mean, I, I think it's outrageous. I mean, I've met real live Nazis during my five years in Germany, and I swear to God, the, some of the ones I met were a lot better than people I dealt with in the American government. What do we know about taking the Afghan war into the former Soviet Union? Uh, that's another bit of craziness. Uh, the, the guy involved in that uh, was a fellow who worked for the Central Intelligence Agency. And uh, his daughter uh, married uh, the, uh, the uncle of... Uh, Joskar Tsarnaev and Tamerlan Tsarnaev. Uh, his daughter, Samantha, married Ruslan Tsarnaev, their uncle. And these were the guys who supposedly were responsible for the Boston Marathon bombing. But Graham Fuller, uh, the CIA officer, uh, he managed the attacks on the Muslim republics in the Soviet Union. They sent the crazies across the uh, Amudarya River, and uh, they... Uh, trained them and funneled the CIA supplies for scattered strikes against various military installations, factories, and storage tanks in the old Soviet Union. And I, I think that's remarkably dangerous, given that the Soviets had half the supply of the world's atomic bombs. You also point out in your book the similarities between uh, the former Yugoslavia and the former USSR in that they both contained a very diverse population ethnically, religious-wise, and so then I guess it would have been easier to stir up trouble in these areas. Oh, yeah. And, for example, in, in Yugoslavia, the Americans sent the, uh, the Orthodox and the Catholics against the Muslims and the uh, Slovenians and the Croats against the Serbians. And, uh, you know, you, you pick your, your nationality minority group and uh, the Americans were backing somebody on the other side. And... Uh, when Germany, I guess, but with the encouragement of the United States, recognized the two most economically viable sections of uh, Yugoslavia, such as uh, Slovenia and Croatia, to secede and form their own country, uh, that helped immensely with the breakup of, of Yugoslavia. Uh, Michael Parenti, in his uh, article about uh, the breakup of Yugoslavia, talked about 
how even the American government got Congress to block funding for any organization that uh, still adhered to the old Yugoslav government and didn't declare themselves an independent country, which I think is absolute madness. What is the Maktab al-Kidamat? Well, that's the Arabic for the uh, the services office that Abdullah Azam and Abdullah Nas uh, were running to uh, support the Arab Afghans, the people they recruited to fight the, the Soviets in Afghanistan who were not Afghan nationals. Didn't Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman, the blind Sheikh himself, get a tourist visa to come to the United States? Yes, and, indeed. And and what and, role had he been playing with the CIA? Well, he nobody really talks about what he was doing. He supposedly was this bad boy, yet traveled on American visas all around the world and then going in and out of the United States despite being on a watch list. Uh, the interesting thing is that when he got the visa uh, in um, um, the Sudan, the deputy chief of mission at the time was the fellow who gave me such problems in Saudi Arabia, um, Joseph P. O'Neill Jr. He had gotten his job there through a CIA family. And according to his statement in the Georgetown University Oral History Project, uh, there was another uh, CIA agent like the uh, the blind sheikh who got a visa and nobody talks about him. And O'Neill blamed the local staff for doing this when it was a CIA case officer who was there who supposedly didn't bother to check the microfiche lookout book for names of, of uh, terrorists and, and other bad boys. Well, it seems to me with regard to the blind shake that we often see uh, the people that work with the government then become uh, the enemy and they turn around and attack them or... Uh, uh, accuse them of something. I mean, the blind sheikh is doing life, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's down in, I think, Texas. And he had been at the Al Farouk Mosque uh, in Brooklyn at this Al Kifa Center. And um, they just simply let him to uh, go back and forth uh, with no problem whatsoever. Uh, the thing that was is, you know, the blind sheikh isn't, isn't by himself. Osama bin Laden was another CIA recruit. And he was suddenly became on their outs when he had served his purposes. Uh, I once interviewed this Toto Constant, this murderer, war criminal, and human rights violator in Haiti that uh, was one of the CIA people in place down there. And when they were tired of him, they threw him in jail. So, you know, they're, they're like uh, Kleenex. You use them to blow your nose, and when that's done, you throw them away. How was the Al Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn used? Uh, it was a transfer point uh, for uh, recruits. It was a transfer point for money. Uh, they sent them uh, funds and operatives to Bosnia. Uh, they found this out after the, uh, the war in, in Yugoslavia was over. And um, it's, a, by and large, a, a way station. They got money from the U.S., uh, Muslims and Arabs in the United States. They laundered it there, and they sent it on to... Uh, to Afghanistan and to uh, to Bosnia and in the other places in the former Yugoslavia. Are the Arab-Afghan legion, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS all one and the same? Pretty much they're rebranded. You've uh, got roughly the same fanatical people that are recruited and trained and armed with American uh, 
Saudi, Gulf, Turkish, uh, Jordanian, and Israeli help. Uh, these are the same people. Uh, they may not be the guys they recruited 25 years ago, but they may be the people that they trained or people that they trained who then later trained somebody else. I put that question to um, uh, former Senator Mike Gravel from Alaska and also to um, uh, retired Army officer Colonel Tony Schaefer. And I said to them, you know, are these the same guys that we trained or who are now fighting American soldiers? And they, they both of them said, yes, these are the same folks. And they've been rebranded. They've changed their name. Uh, they've got different people. I won't say it's as organized as the United States Marine Corps, but uh, they are a pretty good shotgun. They, uh, you load them and you aim them and fire in the general direction of something you want to hit. And sooner or later, you fire enough pellets, you'll hit something. You write that the visas issued in Jeddah for the Mujahideen and ultimately Al-Qaeda and ISIS were not a one-off program. Could you explain that? Were there other centers doing this and continue to issue these uh, visas? Well, I think that at the time I thought it was an original one-time deal. And then I began hearing about the recruiting offices in Bahrain in in the eastern province. And I said, wait a minute. And then as time went by and I was out of the State Department and started hearing about Al-Qaeda, uh, I said, well, this is still going on. And when I read about Shana Stanger uh, being at the CIA's Jeddah consulate, issuing visas to 11 of the 20 uh, hijackers for um, September 11th, I said, my God, it's still going on. Uh, when I read in um, John Schindler's book, Unholy Terror, uh, he had drawn links between Bosnia and Afghanistan and the September 11th people. He names names in his book, which I repeated in mine, of people who were tied in with the September 11th planning and execution. And I said, my God, this is still going on. And uh, from what I could see in the daily newspapers, uh, they haven't given up recruiting these characters. So then is the Arab-Afghan legion still marching? I think they are. Uh, they just have a different brand name. Uh, they're, they're no longer the Mujahideen, uh, and they're no longer Al-Qaeda. They're now ISIL or ISIS or IS or Daesh. Pick it. The U.S. has supported Muslim fundamentalists and opposed Arab secular nationalism. What has been the overall effect of this foreign policy? Disaster. Uh uh, who was it? Uh, Robert Dreyfus wrote in his book, um, The Devil's Game, that originally the Americans saw Islam as a shield against the godless communists. And then they came around to the idea of, well, you know, let's use them as a sword against the godless communists. And up until the Afghan war, using these people as a sword and as a shield were, was kind of a... Um, ad hoc thing. If you wanted to try and get rid of the government of Egypt uh, and try and get uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser assassinated in Damascus, well, you, you know, you hired somebody to do this. Uh, if you wanted to uh, destabilize Syria because it was too socialist, you tried to hire uh, someone in the intelligence services there to overthrow the government. But that was, you know, a catch-as-catch-can thing. It was a one-off business. But with the creation of the Arab-Afghan legion, uh, you know, the, the many rebrands of the Mujahideen, 
you've now got a cadre of people available anytime, anywhere. The United States government wants to dehouse, destabilize, uh, deculturalize uh, a, a country. Michael Springman, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I'm honored and delighted and uh, quite happy to have helped to get the word out to people who are interested in hearing it. I've been speaking with J. Michael Springman. Today's show has been Visas for Al-Qaeda. Michael Springman is a former diplomat in the State Department's Foreign Service with postings to Germany, India, Saudi Arabia, and the Bureau of Intelligence and Research in Washington, D.C. He was chief of the non-immigrant visa section in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia from 1987 to 1989. He is the author of Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts That Rocked the World, An Insider's View. He is the published author of several articles on national security themes, particularly those dealing with relations between the CIA and the Department of State. He is now an attorney in private practice, admitted to the bars of Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Contact him at info at danapub.com. That's info at d-a-e-n-a-p-u-b.com. Visit his website at michaelspringman.com. That's michael, S-P-R-I-N-G-M-A-N-N.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list and receive our newsletter. Guns and Butter Online now includes a new website, an active Twitter feed, show archives, and a blog. Follow us at G&B Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying?